Hello and welcome to uh, this installment of the Horror Drafts podcast. I am Nick Schwartz and I'm joined, as always, by Brantley Palmer. How are you? I'm doing well, Nick. How are you? (laughs) Uh, I'm good. I'm great, actually. We are very fortunate tonight because we are joined by a very special guest, um, author, playwright, screenwriter, and musician Lawrence C. Connolly. Lawrence is the author of The Vein Cycle, and his short stories have been published in Cemetery Dance, Twilight Zone, Amazing Stories, and more. And uh, they've been collected in the books This Way to Egress, Visions, and the Bram Stoker Award-nominated Voices. Um, His short story, Traumatic Descent, was the basis for This Way to Egress, which is the David Slade segment in Mick Garris' anthology horror film Nightmare Cinema. Uh, He's also the writer of Prime Stage Theater's podcast, Mystery Theater, um, and performer on that podcast, I should mention, uh, an accomplished musician and candidly, uh, just one of the nicest people I've ever, ha- ever had the pleasure of meeting. Um, and <laughs> which kind. is, no, it's, it's very true. And he's, uh, he's, he's very generously giving us his time tonight. Um, and, uh, and I should mention, uh, one of his upcoming projects has a lot to do with this episode subject, which is, uh, he is writing or has written a, uh, a stage adaptation, a new stage adaptation of Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, um, which I would love to start out by a- by asking you about, since uh, I know that that has either is going on or about to start. Is that? It is. It, it is. Uh, I believe they are going to have uh, auditions um, in just about a week. This has been a project that uh, started before COVID. I had just gotten back from L.A. Um, I was at um, uh, I was in Mexico with uh, Mick Garris and uh, Sandra Bessarel and uh, Richard Christian Matheson. We worked together on Nightmare Cinema, and we had a book come out in Mexico in Spanish. And uh, we went to the Sustafest Film Festival down there and uh, had a big book launch, and it was great fun. And and uh, came back. Came back home and um, the I, I went to a play at uh, the Prime Stage Theater, and the um, the director there, uh, you know, had heard about me and he came up and he said, "We're interested in doing Frankenstein. We wonder if you would be if you would entertain the notion of uh, of doing the stage play and writing the script." And I thought, this is a dream. I, I had never thought of, um, of approaching anybody about this, but I have uh, always been a big fan of Frankenstein, a big fan of Mary Shelley. And it, I got the idea that uh, this would be the opportunity to do it right, to finally do the story right and um, have the monster represented as he is in Mary Shelley's book and, uh, and try to get all those themes in there and uh, not shortcut the horror at all, but make sure that we uh, uh, stay true to Mary Shelley's sensibilities and so it was scheduled for premiere in uh 2020 (laughs) we know what happened then (laughs) and then it was bumped to 2021 uh, and another wave came along but this time we figured it out theaters have figured it out we know what we need to do we know how to put on a play uh during a lingering pandemic and it's going to happen so this november uh 2022 uh, at the Prime Stage Theater. Um, they do their plays uh, in, in Pittsburgh at the New Hazlet Theater, and um, that's where it's um, it's going to be, at the, at the New Hazlet Theater in Pittsburgh. So I'm really looking forward to it. It's uh, It's been a long time coming. I think it's a terrific script. I'm very excited about it. Uh, glad to have the opportunity to bring Mary Shelley's story um, uh, to, a, uh, to an audience that might not really know that story. That's amazing, and I'm I'm super excited to uh, to see. It's been um, 
Yeah, it's been uh, one of my favorite novels for a long time. Um, and I'm just curious, uh, since you, you chose the the subject matter for tonight's draft, which is, of course, um, Frankenstein adaptation. So um, wh- uh, has that always been um, something that's been close to your heart? Or did this like really take off when you started this project? Or how did that come to be? Yes, I've uh, been a fan of the novel for, uh, for for quite a few years. I did not read it as a child. I, I did not even read it as a young man. I uh, came to the novel fairly late. I suppose I was in my 30s when I finally got around to reading it and um, uh, read it a few times and was pretty much knocked out by it. I was not, I, I was a monster kid in some ways. You know, uh, you had that um, uh, kaiju, am I pronouncing that word right? <laughs> you had that uh, horror draft kaiju uh, installment a couple of uh, weeks ago, and that's where I was. That's where my head was back in um, my childhood. Uh, I, I didn't really watch the Frankenstein movies for a couple of reasons. I'll get into those as we talk about some of our selections tonight. But I was more into the big things. So it was fairly late in life um, that I uh, developed a fondness for Frankenstein. And I felt as I read the book, since I came to it with no preconceptions or perhaps with fewer preconceptions than a lot of other people, I noticed some things that I hadn't heard talked about before. And um, again, we'll talk about some of those as we go forward with tonight's discussion. But uh, it was an interest of mine, but the interest was primarily rooted in the book. And then after that, I really developed a fondness for the films. And I began to accept the films on their own merits. Even though they took great liberties with Shelley's novel, I developed a a fondness for them. And uh, ergo, this conversation tonight. Outstanding. Very cool. Um, I'm very excited to uh, dive a little bit deeper into Frankenstein with you, um, for sure. But I would, um, if we have time, and if you have time, would love to talk to you about some some previous projects, um, of course, including Nightmare Cinema, because I'm sure that most of our listeners are familiar with that material. And um, if you have any insights or anything you'd like to share about that process, making that movie, and I know it was a long time coming with that short, so... It was. It was. It was an amazingly long time, and uh, we have a couple of other projects in the works right now, and I'm hoping they don't take quite as long. But uh, yeah, this one was optioned for the first time um, by a production company in uh, in England in 2001, and uh, David Slade was assigned to it even then, and uh, Charlie Cantor, uh, a, an indie uh, film writer in in London, wrote the script, and that was under option for many years, and it never got made. It was going to be a feature film. And I, at one point, I guess it was around uh, 2014, 2015, I pretty much gave up on it. I figured, well, this is not going to be made. This is not going to happen. And um, no sooner did I pretty much accept that than I get a phone call from David. And, uh, and he says, uh, we're going to do this. Uh, um, Mick Garris has a, uh, has a concept. He has a vehicle for us. And uh, it's going to be Nightmare Cinema. It's going to be an anthology show. And there are going to be five directors, five stories. And we're going to do This Way to Egress as a short. And so, which was, which was great because what we did is, uh, as we collaborated on the screenplay, it was the story. We took the story right off the page, put it in a screenplay form, 
Uh, it came out just, uh, we decided we needed one more scene. He gave me a call. He said, uh, what do you got? And we came up with a final scene. And uh, for those people who have seen it, it's the scene where she is on the telephone uh, talking to her ex-husband and the, uh, and the monster is pushing the, the, the floor buffer uh, down the hall. That's, uh, that was the new one that came up that's not in the story, but everything else is pretty much beat for beat, line for line. It's the story, which is very gratifying, very exciting. Yeah, I can't even imagine. That's awesome to see it come to life like that. Um, and obviously, Dave David is is an incredible filmmaker, and that's such a powerful segment. I mean, like that anthology is so much fun. But um, like, yeah, on a, on a personal level, obviously, knowing you is is makes it special. But just it's there's so much unique about it, especially in the context of that film. I mean, starting from the obvious with it being black and white, which is gorgeous and crisp, and just it's so well shot. Um, this one really kind of delves into into the psychology of of this woman, and it's just it's really incredibly done. Um, yeah, thanks a lot. So yeah, it's awesome. Um, do you have and, um, like are you still in touch with David? Do you guys have any other projects in in mind? Right or? before right before the pandemic, um, the last time I was in L.A., we had we had lunch and we talked about a feature version uh, of Igris, and uh, uh, I'm still hoping that's going to happen. <laughs> You know, we have a script. We have a new script. Um, uh, as I say, there, there was a script back in uh, the early uh, zeros, and um, I have written a new script and uh, uh, have passed it on to him, and uh, we're, we're collaborating on it. It's, uh, he has a uh, film right now in, uh, in progress, uh, Red Harvest, uh, which I'm very uh, excited about, very much looking forward to it. Uh, it's, it's based on a Norman Partridge story. And um, but I'm hoping I, I still hope that uh, we might see a feature film uh, version of Igris. It um, there's certainly a lot more to say about that subject. Excellent. And it sounds like there were some other kind of friendships that came out of that. I noticed that Mick Garris wrote the foreword to your uh, short story collection, Voices, uh, as well. I and mean, have you stayed in contact with Mick as well, and and made a you know a friend in, in him. Yes, absolutely. And uh, as I say, we were all uh, the, the writers on uh, Nightmare Cinema were, were in Mexico uh, mm-hmm. for that book launch. And uh, we have um, just uh, the, the English version of that same book has just come out from Gauntlet Press. And, um, you know, people can check it out at the at Gauntlet Press website. And uh, so this is a book called Nightmares, and the cover is by David Slade. It has uh, four stories in it, a story by Mick, a story by Richard Christian Matheson, a story by Sandra Bessarel, who also edited the book, and, mm-hmm. uh, and a story by me. So, uh, yes, we have continued to, to work and to, uh, to remain friends. It was a terrific group of people that worked on that film, and some lasting friendships were certainly made during it. Oh, that's wonderful. That's great to hear. Yeah, yeah, that's incredible. Um, I, uh, yeah, so, and I, I, I'm loving Mystery Theater. I don't know how much you want to talk about that, but I really encourage our, our listeners to check that out. Um, I'm obviously particularly, uh, interested in, uh, chapter three because it deals with a production, a stage production of the, as far as I understand, um, in your, in your fictional story that you're writing, they are putting on a stage production of what was the very first stage adaptation of Mary Shelley's novel. That's right. Presumption uh, or the fate of Frankenstein. That's right. And that uh, podcast came about when the theaters went dark and when uh, Frankenstein was postponed. 
the uh, director of um, Prime Stage Theater came to me and said, do you suppose there is some way that we could, uh, in this world of social distancing, could we possibly create some kind of theater experience that would involve um, the audience and uh, would, would give the audience a story that they could uh, interact with? And he said at the time, he said, what about a mystery set in a theater that was broken up into installments? And at the end of each installment, the audience gets a chance to, uh, to, to ask themselves, well, what is happening? What are the clues? What's going to happen next? And uh, so that's how Mystery Theater began. And um, we are in, we're going into our sixth season now. The next uh, series of episodes are going to launch in November to coincide with Frankenstein. It's going to be a, a special gothic ghost story featuring the same ensemble of characters that uh, are in the first five episodes or first five seasons. So um, that is going great. You know, it, it's interesting that when the pandemic comes along and it shuts the door on live theater, it shuts the door on going to the movies, along comes this opportunity to write these podcasts that uh, I wouldn't have done if, it, if, uh, if all of this stuff hadn't happened. So it clearly is a, um, a case where one door closes and another door opens. So it's been exciting. It's super fun, and I'm actually, that's great to hear about season six, because as Brantley knows, and some of our <laughs> listeners, gothic ghost stories are kind of my jam. That's, that's where my interest lies, so that's awesome. Um, and, um, yeah, I don't want to, I obviously want to get into the podcast, but I, I keep coming up with new things that I would love to ask you about. Um, one being, um, since you perform uh, Mystery Theater as well, um, and you're a great performer, and I've seen when you do your readings, you you perform your stories often from memory, and that's is that called scoping? Am I correct about that? Um, I do them from memory. That that's right. Uh, I you know, I um, I, I never really got into um, sitting and listening to a writer read from a book if the writer gets lost in the book you know some writers tend to get lost in the books when they read I mean it's as if they are just reading to themselves and uh, I just always thought that well it needs to be something more you, you need to give the performance something more and uh, the story starts in the mind it's still in there so why not just channel it in a live reading where the reading is presented from memory it, it's very liberating and uh, so, yes, that is the way I prefer to do my readings. I've uh, uh, been at the, um, uh, the Fantastic Fiction series in New York that is hosted by Matt Kressel and Ellen Datlow uh, at the uh, KGB Bar in uh, the East Village. I've been there three times and um, done, done those readings from memory each time. Um, mystery theater uh, f doesn't need to be from memory because I'm doing it on a podcast, but um, there is the possibility. There has been a little bit of talk of, uh, of maybe doing a uh, one-man show based on um, those mystery theater shows. We'll see if that happens. Nice. Oh, that's great. Yeah, that's <laughs> that exciting. Very cool. Um, were there any other projects you wanted to talk about while, while we have you? No, I think this is this is delightful getting the opportunity to talk about what I've been up to. You know, I just came from uh, a, a science fiction convention here in uh, Pittsburgh, 
and uh, just rolled in and um, I had a great time there. We were talking about how the um, pandemic has affected horror fiction. I did a presentation on that nice. with uh, with three other writers. It was uh, great fun. But um, no, I think we're ready to go. I think we're ready to launch into this um, exploration of uh, science or uh, science fiction, but certainly of uh, of Frankenstein spinoffs, uh, whether they be fr- science fiction or, or horror or whatever. But all these various works that owe everything to Mary Shelley, who started everything um, over 200 years ago. So let's roll. All right, All right, let's do it. Um, yeah, Brantley, you wanna, you're want you going first, right? So Brantley, yeah. you start us off. That's correct. Um, so we, we talked before, you know, we were doing this podcast, and, and I was very happy to hear you were taking a very, like, liberal approach to what is considered an adaptation of Frankenstein. But uh, so as I make my first book, I feel like I'm going to need, I'm going to have to give, you know, ask you essentially if it qualifies as an uh, appropriate adaptation because my mind immediately went to RoboCop oh, as yes. and you know and you know it's an 80s film and instead of the doctor it's a corporation what better way than it being you know to embody the 80s and corporate greed than a corporation creating this uh well essentially bringing this man back to life and instead of other human body parts it's machinery and uh robotic uh, equipment essentially to create him into a cyborg um and I love that film. It is uh, so wonderful and fantastic. But I feel like I need to get approval from you to see is does that qualify as an adaptation? I think it's brilliant. I think it's absolutely brilliant. And I'll tell you why. One of the um, things, one of the repeating themes you see in these Frankenstein movies, particularly the Hammer films, although mm. no, now it suddenly occurs to me, no, that with the Universal films as well, is this bit where the, the brain ends up in the um, uh, in in the artificial body, and here mm-hmm. we have um, what is the actor's name? Weller. Um, uh, yeah, Peter Weller. Weller. Peter yeah. Weller, and uh, he is a cop. He is uh, he is wounded. His body is destroyed. Am I getting this right? And his mm-hmm. body ends up in a robot, right? And exactly. this is it. This this is what we see in so many of the, the Hammer films and the middle uh, uh, Frankenstein films at Universal with uh, Bella Lugosi. We see this as one of the predominant themes. So absolutely, Brentley, let's do it. Oh, nice, perfect. Okay, yeah. Then yes, RoboCop is absolutely my number one pick for this uh, series of adaptations of Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. Um, I mean, it really is when you think about it, just a modern retelling, just set in an era where there's, you know, well, I guess like a, it's set in a dystopian kind of corporate corporatocracy future in which uh, technology is better than it is now that allows them to do that. Um, but that's awesome. I'm so glad that that. <laughs> <laughs> that that's able to be taken. So yes, RoboCop is my first round selection. Excellent. That's awesome. I never would have even made that connection. That's great that you thought of that. Okay. Um, well, hey, look, I wouldn't have made it unless you know we hadn't had those discussions over email. And, and Larry was like, "Yeah, like let's go, you know, let's go wild and do you know anything, you know, like any doctors creating you know people." And I was worried if it was going to be direct adaptations that I just wouldn't have the knowledge that our guest is bringing to this podcast to even be able to to do this draft so I, i'm very happy that uh you were taking such a liberal approach let's say yeah and i'm i'm in a similar boat where i uh i, I um you know i i think some of my choices are i'm afraid they're going to get picked um because maybe they are a little bit more direct adaptations than the obvious ones but um mm-hmm. 
that was my when you brought up robocop and corporate greed um one of the movies on my list and i'll I'll preface this by saying my my movies are not going to be in order of like what i think is the best movie or not i'm just Mm. for instance right now i was going to do um a film that i'm hoping now i will pick later uh, because i thought it would follow your discussion on corporate greed rather well but since larry brought up the hammer films i feel like i have to grab one now just in case um so I, uh, my first choice will be uh, the first Hammer film, Curse of Frankenstein, from 1957. Um, because, uh, now I haven't seen all of the Hammer films, but of the ones I've seen, um, I, I, that one's my favorite. I mean, ob- the obvious is that Christopher Lee plays, you know, the creature, which is a pretty great, but um, Peter Cushing is awesome in all of them, uh, and, and as, as Victor Frankenstein. Um, Obviously, um, now it's been a while since I read the novel, but um, like the Universal film and all the other ones, I think it's a very liberal adaptation of the source material. But um, at the same time, it has all of the, you know, it hits the beats that I think you'd expect in a Frankenstein movie. And um, and it does it really well. And, and the thing that's great about all Hammer productions is that they look gorgeous. The sets are incredible. The costumes are wonderful. They, you know, the, they're, the money is like on screen and looks great. And this is no different. Um, it's a great-looking Frankenstein movie. Um, and um, and the monster makeup, which I, I would argue is a very important part of these films, is, is really top-notch. It's pretty creepy. Um, and, yeah, I was I was um, it was actually one that I saw for the first time in prep for this podcast and uh, definitely happy that I finally got around to that because I've always liked Hammer films, and, and these were a pretty big hole in my library. So, yep, Curse of Frankenstein is my, is my number one choice here. Yeah, that's a good one. And um, it, there's uh, the first 10 minutes or so of that film uh, really try to uh, set the scene with uh, an accurate adaptation of, uh, of Shelley's novel. It certainly is truncated, but um, uh, we do get a chance to meet the family. Um, uh, as I recall, Elizabeth is there. She's there, um, yep. the, um, the, the mother has died. I think we have things out of order there because uh, in the novel, uh, the mother dies first and then the father dies, but uh, uh, they die in a different order in that movie. But nevertheless, we find Victor... Um, without um, any parents, and we now see him being taken under the wing by Professor uh, Krempe, I believe, uh, they have in that, that Hammer film, which is from the novel. So if I'm remembering it correctly, uh, that novel, that film starts off with uh, with a nice homage to uh, Shelley's work. Yeah, yeah, the, those first scenes, and I didn't even make the Professor Krempe con- connection. I, for, I didn't realize, like, of course, he's a character in the novel, but... Um, because I, I thought that was a character I added for the film. It's been so long since I read the novel, but yeah. But in the novel, he doesn't. He's not. Is does he play as large a part? Because uh, he he's in that movie no. throughout. Yeah. Okay. That's what I. Yeah. No, he does not. As a matter of fact, he is uh, very quickly replaced by uh, Professor Waldman, uh, who is the one that ends up being the mentor um, that okay. makes the difference. So they took a little bit of liberty there, but um, and then they really go off on some tangents, but uh, very oh, yeah. exciting tangents. <laughs> so that. Yeah. And then we, we arrive at the end. I won't give anything away, of course, but uh, uh, we arrive at the end, and we are in very different territory at that point. Yes, <laughs> yeah, that's for sure. Um, yeah, so, uh, Larry, it's your, you, you got back-to-back, right. back, the first back-to-back. <clears throat> All right, here I go. This is, I asked for the back-to-back segment uh, when we rolled uh, the dice, and so here we go. Um, let's go way back in time on this one. Uh, let's, go, let's take uh, one that... Um, uh, this is not going to, I hope, not going to steal anybody's thunder. This is a fairly, uh, Nick maybe alluded to it slightly uh, earlier, but I'm going to go with Presumption or the Fate of Frankenstein. 
1823. And I have a very good reason for picking this one. This debuted at the Opera House on the West End in London. And if it weren't for this production, we would probably not have had the Universal films or the Hammer films. It's likely that Frankenstein might have passed into obscurity if this play hadn't come along and just injected this thing into the mass consciousness. Now what we have here is a play written by Richard Brinsley Peake. And talk about taking liberties. This is, has very little resemblance to Mary Shelley's book with the exception that there isn't there is a scientist his name is Frankenstein and there is a monster and the monster dominates the story and the monster was played by a guy a veteran actor named T.P. Cook and he played it in a huge 80s rock star wig with blue skin and not a, not a, um, uh, a scar or a stitch uh, anywhere to show that he had been operated on because in Shelley's book it's pretty clear that that monster is not put together by random body parts and here's how we know this because in chapter 4 Victor decides he can't work with the pieces he's been taking from the charnel houses and from the graves. He's been collecting body parts, he's been studying them, but he makes this pronouncement in chapter 4 where he says that the minuteness of the parts made it impossible to work on this thing, and so he resolved to make it 8 feet tall. And that was going to give him the opportunity to, um, to create life that had never existed before. Now, it's possible. You could see in that same chapter that he is also taking parts from slaughterhouses. But it doesn't make sense that he would try to create his creature from the parts of oxes and horses because he wants to create a god. He wants to create something that is superhuman. He doesn't want to create something human, and he's not going to create something superhuman out of human parts. Now, here's where the play really shows this presumption the fate of Frankenstein if you look at the pictures of T.P. Cook online what you will see is that there is not a single suture or a scar or stitch um, scar on him at all he is fully formed when he makes his entrance now Mary Shelley didn't get a cent for this thing and uh, she was in Europe traveling around relatively homeless at the time and she was on her way back to England and she got word that this play was being staged and uh, at that point, her novel had only sold 500 copies in its first edition. It was pretty much forgotten. And uh, along comes this play, and people are fainting, and they're, they're raving about it. It's becoming a cultural phenomenon. She goes to uh, London. She sees the play, and uh, she says uh, that she didn't think it was very well managed, but she certainly was pleased, in her words, to be famous. And as a result of this play, the, the novel came out in a second edition, uh, and um, a second printing, and then a second edition, and um, the rest is history. One other thing, this is a very interesting aside, even though the, um, the play does not have a lot in common with the book, it did introduce things that became staples to the Frankenstein spinoffs that came later. For example, uh, the servant. Victor Frankenstein doesn't have a servant. Well, here he has a servant, and the servant is named Fritz, and that was the name of the servant in the first uh, James Whale Frankenstein. 
And uh, in here, the monster is uh, killed in an avalanche and encased in ice. And isn't that what we see in, uh, let's see, was it Frankenstein meets the Wolfman, where at the beginning we see the, uh, the monster encased in ice. It was one of, those, one of those middle universal films. So there are things going on in Presumption of the Fate of Frankenstein that are not in the novel, but they set the scenes for what is to come later in the adaptations. And um, people who want to read this thing, they can read it. It is available online. It's all over the place online. You can even find some uh, amateur productions of it, which I can't really recommend. But um, I will say that those pictures of T.P. Cook, uh, go ahead and Google that, T. P. C. O. O. K. E. Those pictures of the monster that he played are quite astounding. Uh, very much worth a look. That's really interesting and, and brings up a point that I wanted to ask you about, um, and it'll probably come up again, but I, I, now feels like a good time to, to ask. Um, now, I, I'm not that familiar with Mary Shelley's life and, and her other novels, um, but I am curious because I've been reading conflicting things online. Um, <clears throat> of the many, there were obviously many editions of Frankenstein, of the novel. Um, I think it was 1818 when it was published, right? And then 1831, there was an edition and maybe That's even right. another one. Um, do you can you shed some light for us on because um, I genuinely don't know um, the major differences and and why those were, you know why she continued iterating on this novel, you know yeah there's a lot popular. of discussion on this there's a lot of debate on this as to which is the preferred edition. Um, well, what happened is um, the publisher, in order to secure the copyright, needed a new edition, and so Mary Shelley had to not necessarily completely rewrite it, but needed to revamp it so that the copyright would be new for this publisher who brought it out in, uh, in 1831 or 32. Um, and now, which is the better of the two? I personally prefer the second edition. This is Mary writing. She's, uh, she's no longer a, uh, you know, a teenager. She is, uh, she's a woman. She's lived through a lot. She has lost a lot. Her children have died. Um, she, has, she has lost her husband. She is uh, looking at life from a whole new perspective. And she has learned a lot, too. She has become quite a seasoned writer. She has spent the last uh, 10 years uh, of her life, uh, you know, kind of itinerant, on the run, uh, living um, from, um, you know, from, from rented apartment to rented apartment in Europe and in England, um, in and out of a, um, a relationship with her father, um, sometimes on the outs with him, sometimes on the in with him. She has learned a lot about human nature. And I think what she brings to that second edition is a maturity that really brings everything home. And uh, that is uh, my preferred uh, edition. Now, what is different? Uh, in the first edition, Mary's, uh, or um, let's see, Elizabeth. Elizabeth is uh, Victor's sister. And in the second edition, she is a cousin, uh, a second cousin. And so this, this is the one who becomes Victor's wife. There, um, most, more importantly, I think, the Walton scenes that begin the book, uh, people who have read the book or have possibly seen the Kenneth Branagh film know that the story begins on the, uh, at the North Pole with an explorer who was icebound there. And so what Shelley did in the new version is she really brought out the similarities between this explorer who wants to discover the North Pole and this um, scientist who wants to discover the secret of life. And at one point in that second edition, Victor says to Robert Walton, 
is it possible that you share my madness? Uh, if it is possible, then I wish I could dash that cup from your lips right now, because that way lies madness. And I think that that really makes for a, um, for, for a more mature, a more interesting characterization. So my assessment, I recommend strongly that second edition. Excellent. Excellent. <clears throat> Um, yeah, I, I reread um, the what was the second edition, uh, essentially, because that's, I think, the most well-known one. That's the one that kind of circulates most, I think. Um, and I hadn't read it since probably high school. And there was so much I just did not remember. Or, like, my memories were more shaped by, like, the Universal films and things like that. And so I forgot that, you know, the his wanting a bride is in the book you know that that wasn't just a separate story that you know was a sequel to the movie for bride of frankenstein i forgot that it started with these letters the letters from uh you know the captain and everything uh and that yeah there's that whole north pole and that you know frankenstein or victor frankenstein is essentially like this you know cautionary tale to to captain walton uh at the beginning of the book i'd completely you know, for, forgotten all of those elements from the book. And it was a really interesting way of like setting the scene for what she would then go into with the story of Victor and his creation. Um, so it was really actually a lot of fun to revisit um, the, the book for this uh, draft as, as well as, you know, watching adaptations. And he, the, the creature in the book, if memory serves is is pretty well spoken right isn't there it's like mm -hmm. the framework of the book is that it's like a, a story within a story within a story like that's right victor's telling yes. his story and then the monster tells his story to victor and that's really yeah, yeah. an interesting way of framing you know the overall story it is when you think about it no 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 let's put that in perspective because we have walton who is essentially telling the whole story now walton meets Frankenstein. And Frankenstein is, is almost dead. He's, he's, he's found on the ice floe. He is um, you know, starving and frozen, and he's out of his mind. And he tells this story. And part of the story that he tells is the story that he heard from the monster that was also uh, living in the wilderness and uh, kind of uh, going crazy with rejection. So we have a story told by a driven scientist who's relatively sane, and this is Robert Walton, channeling a story that he heard from a man who is on the verge of madness, told, and then part of that story is told to him by a creature that has been driven mad by cruelty. So that, that layering effect is very important uh, at the book. And this is how Mary Shelley you know, would kind of justify to her readers and say, well, I know this is a fantastic story, but keep in mind, keep it in perspective. This is a story that is told a second time and then a story that is told third hand. Remarkable stuff. Yeah. That's super I'm, I'm wondering were there, and I'm wondering, because it, it almost lends into that, that, uh, idea of like an unreliable narrator yes it does and and i wonder if this was fairly new i i guess my my knowledge of you know literary history isn't good enough to un, to know if you know that was a fairly new concept at the time or something that she was introducing or was something that was because the novel was fairly new you know in 18 uh yeah 1818 right when she published this originally that's right like 
Yeah, I mean, that was a fairly, fairly new medium, essentially. It was mostly, like, shorts and, you know, short fiction, you know, uh, that were coming before these longer novel-length uh, books, essentially. You're exactly right. Exactly. That's why we have the word novel. Novel means mm. new. This was a new kind of fiction. And, uh, and Mary Shelley is taking it to new places. Yes, I think it's uh, no coincidence or, or no surprise that uh, the, the great science fiction writer Brian Aldiss uh, calls Mary Shelley the, the mother of science fiction. And in many ways, she is uh, the mother of fiction, uh, yeah. novel-length fiction. Yeah, absolutely. Or modern it, fiction, yeah. <laughs> you would probably know this, and I don't mean to continue like <laughs> setting us off on tangents. I know originally when the story was published, it didn't have her name on it. It had her husband's name on it, right, yes. Percy Shelley? Was well, it in the... Oh, sorry, go ahead. No, I was, you, you're, you're very close. Uh, it did okay. not have her name on it. <clears throat> Actually, it was, um, uh, it was generally, uh, it was not unusual for a book to come out without the author's name on it at the time. Mm. But because Percy Shelley had written the preface to that book, yes. people assumed that it was him. Yeah, it was yes. not. It was it was definitely Mary Shelley. Uh, mm-hmm. If you if you compare Frankenstein to Percy Shelley's work, uh, you can definitely see this is a new voice. This is a different voice. So um, the um, people assumed it was by Percy Shelley, mm-hmm. and uh, and then Mary Shelley um, uh, did get her name on the second edition. Okay, so that was my question. Did her name not come on until the second edition in 1831, was it? Or was there, it like a second printing of the first edition? There was a second printing of the first edition, and that came out uh, around the same time as Presumption or the Fate of Frankenstein. Uh, so the, um, so the, the second edition is cashing in on the phenomenon uh, of this play. And um, so that did have her name on it, yes. I see. Gotcha. Thank you. And was there? Sorry, one more question because I this is because <laughs> Brantley just brought it up. I wasn't, um, but I was reading um, that. I I, I guess <clears throat> um, subsequent to the second edition, or sorry, yeah, the second edition being published um, in eighteen thirty one, um, and really for like a hundred years after that, there's a, a large element of like, from what I understand, a large element of sexism in in the argument over whether or not Percy did indeed write the the book because of i guess because of his notes and some of her original that that were then you know on display um and uh and people were were like questioning how much he really and from what i understand too uh you know some historians have now looked at those and and basically deduced like these notes are no more than any editor would be giving on any novel published today um and i don't know if that's true because i haven't seen the notes but i'm curious to that's true. That is true. Um, we all work with editors. Um, you know, writers work with editors. Uh, directors work with editors. Um, this is not a, a solitary process. Um, writing it more so than other art forms, but we still rely on editors and proofreaders and uh, and spouses and friends to give us feedback. Um, so yes, the work is definitely hers, and um, and it's far better than anything. I, I I guess Shelley Percy Shelley fans will probably take exception to this, but uh, but but certainly I I think Head and Shoulders above uh, uh, what uh, Percy Shelley did. Nice. Oh, that's great. Very cool. Sorry, sorry to ask so many questions. It's it's nice doing this podcast when we can have people who are like really experts on a topic come in. Sure. So it's nice getting to pick your brain about it. <laughs> Absolutely, this is fun. And uh, and, and so so now, uh, since I am the third 
mm-hmm. person in line. Yeah, I you get, get the back to back. So get ready, folks. Here we <laughs> go. Right. This one, uh, another one, maybe a little bit out of left field, but I think you're going to dig it. Uh, it's The Son of Frankenstein, 1931, directed by uh, Roland V. Lee uh, and uh, written by Willis Cooper. And um, it stars uh, Basil Rathbone as, I love this name, Baron Wolf von Frankenstein. <laughs> you know, Frankenstein meets the wolf man already. And, um, and there are reasons I, I love this film. And, of course, I, I'm a great, I'm a huge fan of The Bride of Frankenstein. And I'm a huge fan of James Whale's first film. But this one has something special going on in it, and that is... Is, it is the last film in which Boris Karloff plays the monster, and it is the first one where Bela Lugosi knocks me out with his presentation of Igor. This is the first time we get Igor. Um, so the servant has gone from being um, Fritz. If I'm getting, I hope I'm getting these names right. Fritz in the uh, Presumption or the Fate of Frankenstein. It becomes Carl in uh, Bride of Frankenstein, and then in Son of Frankenstein, it becomes Igor. And without Igor, we wouldn't have Igor in Mel Brooks' Young Frankenstein. <laughs> so this is important. But better than that is this knockout performance by Bella Lugosi. I keep saying Bella. Excuse me, Bela Lugosi. How if if you have if any listeners have not seen um, Son of Frankenstein recently, please go back and watch it. It's not the best Frankenstein movie, but Bela Lugosi's performance is just a knockout, and he steals the show. And Boris Karloff was not happy about that, <laughs> and he said after that, after making that film, that he would not do another show with Boris or with, with Bela Lugosi if Bela Lugosi was going to upstage him. Now, Boris kind of asked for it because after having a speaking part in The Bride of Frankenstein, he insisted that in The Son of Frankenstein, the monster not speak. And so, <laughs> Bela Lugosi, whose part was very small, um, you know, Lee's screenplay was, 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 had uh, Igor with a very small part, and um, uh, actually it's Cooper's screenplay, but it was Lee who was a fan of Frankenstein, a fan of Bela Lugosi, who kept making the part bigger. And Bela is running with it, and it's just pure genius. And some of it seems like improvisation. So I would say that because it is Boris Karloff's last stint as the monster, last go-round as the monster, and because Bela is turning in the performance of his life, uh, I'd have to say, um, getting back to something that, uh, that, that Brantley has said on previous podcasts, um, um, draft from the heart. <laughs> and this is definitely <laughs> drafting from my heart. <clears throat> and this is also one, uh, I believe this is uh, where we set up, or maybe it's the next one. I don't want to get ahead of things. But um, uh, there is the, Bela's performance as Igor will lead a couple of movies down the line to this notion of uh, brain transplanting again, right? So this, um, and uh, Bela ends up being transplanted uh, into the Frankenstein monster in the next movie, and then in the uh, the film Frankenstein Meets the Wolfman, we have uh, Bela Lugosi playing the monster, and unfortunately, unfortunately, uh, all of his dialogue scenes were cut because he was unable to deliver the lines, but that would have been great. So there we go. The Son of Frankenstein. That's my guilty pleasure. Uh, not the best Frankenstein movie, but man, um, I, I got to give um, got to give credit to uh, to Bela Lugosi for that one. Awesome. Nice. No, yeah, great pick. Love it. Um, all right. So I'm 
is tough. This is tough because I don't know what's going to get picked. Um, I'm going to pick one that I actually I'm just I'm just going to pick it. I don't think it's going to get picked later, but we'll see. Um, it's mm-hmm. a more recent adaptation, um, Depraved, which is Larry Fessenden's. Oh, all right. Oh, sorry. I thought I was going to get that in the fourth or fifth round. You're trying oh, to know. sorry. Oh, man. <laughs> well, okay, right. I take it all back. I'm glad that I picked it on round two. Um, <laughs> no, sorry. I just. No, no. That's. I'm glad it's getting drafted, but I just. I thought it would be a round later is all. Well, this is the one that I was going to, I kind of felt might follow RoboCop just because of the themes of, of corporate greed. Um, oh. um, which are, are, are prevalent there, as well as mm-hmm. you know, PTSD and, and war. It, it's just it's an interesting modern day retelling of the story, um, and yeah. uh, it takes place in modern day Brooklyn. It's about um, you know the Frankenstein character. I don't even know if his name is Frankenstein in the book. I think they, I mean, in the movie, I think they allude to Frankenstein the book because it exists in this universe, and I think they call him Frankenstein as a joke. I don't think that's his name in the movie. I can't recall, but mm-hmm. he was a he was like a field medic during the war, and he has PTSD, um, and and he's creating, um, he's recreating a person and animating a person from body parts, um, really as a means of coping with like, you know, having lost people in combat, but um, also he's being bankrolled by a corporation that intends to use this creation, um, you know, for for war, for the war machine. To you know, if you have undead soldiers, then you have nothing to lose, and you can bring them back over and over, and et cetera, et cetera. So there's a there's an added element of corporate greed there that's kind of interesting. But also, I'm just a big Larry Fessenden fan. I like a lot of his movies, um, and uh, you know, he he's he's like the Robert Rodriguez of indie horror film. So, you know, he does he writes, directs, and edits, and um, so this was his like he wrote this, he directed it, he edited it, and uh, and you know he has a cameo in it. I'm just big Larry Fessenden fan, so I wanted to shout him out. And um, Depraved 2019, it's a good movie, um, and I recommend it. Yeah, nice one. yeah, it's yeah, it's really good. Had, had you seen this one, Larry? I am aware of it, and so now okay. I'm going to put it on my list. Okay, yeah, I I, I watched this one for this uh, draft and was pleasantly surprised uh, by it. I thought. You know, because it's a fairly low-budget film, and I think they did a really good job of adapting it to both modern times and using kind of what he could for the budget that he had. And it doesn't ever feel cheap. It 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 um, and it is it is a pretty well done, I think, in a way that makes a lot of sense. Like you know, it's a pharmaceutical company. I think is like the big tech company that he works for, essentially, right? Or or that he's bankrolled by, because it's uh, Paladori is the name of the. The character who's bankrolling him from the company, kind of like yeah. underneath the the guy under underneath the boss, without not really knowing his father in law is basically like uh, a higher up at the company, I think. Um, and uh, and yeah, I think it it you know it 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 kind of like you feel like it could actually happen uh, in in a way that is realistic. And uh, I, I thought it it did a really good job. It was striking a balance of being the science fiction story, but that's also um, you know, very uh, well acted and very dramatic and very touching in some ways and, and heartbreaking in others. Um, yeah, weirdly yeah I, thought, I thought it was really, yeah, I thought they did a really good job with it. And there's the one aspect that I, I can't, I'm sure it's in, because there's dozens of adaptations and um, movies inspired by the source material, but the one thing that I saw in Depraved that I, I can't remember seeing in another adaptation is, um, you know, a sequence where... Um, you know, the, the end goal, like in the novel, is to create, like, a superhuman, essentially. Um, mm-hmm. Not a bumbling, sort of 
Boris Karloff, Karloff-esque monster that I think people associate with Frankenstein. The idea is to create like a superhuman soldier, basically. Um, but because it's being reanimated from a bunch of dead body parts, there's a sequence in the in the film where um, you know where the scientist is is essentially like giving this monster physical therapy, teaching it to talk again, to read, to learn. I mean, they 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 go into that a little bit, which is interesting because obviously. You know, I've never met someone who's been reanimated from the dead, but I would think that if a brain has been, you know, in the fantasy world where this is real um, and brains are being reanimated, like that's, I would imagine, part of it, <laughs> you know, training this thing from the ground up again. And I thought I found that pretty fascinating. They did that really well. Yeah. Uh. Okay. Oh, wow. All right. So I, now I'm up uh, with a back to back here. Um. I'm going to take, and I'd be very curious what your thoughts are on this, uh, Larry. I'm going to take Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, directed by Kenneth Branagh. I don't know if I've seen an adaptation that is as accurate as this. Not that this is perfect. There's certainly lots of, you know, liberties taken. But I don't know if I've seen one that is as close to her novel as Mary Shelley's Frankenstein is. And I'm, I'm very curious what your thoughts are on that, Larry. That's right. Brana certainly tried, didn't he? I mean, uh, it, yeah. it took a lot uh, of gumption to go ahead and uh, open with uh, Walton. Walton is usually the first element to go. And, <laughs> yeah. uh, and so there's Robert Walton. And, um, and I like the portrayal of Wa- Robert Walton at the beginning. Uh, Robert Walton is not wearing a snazzy Navy uniform. I mean, this guy is, is wearing a ragged cloak. He is, um, he's kind of a citizen captain. He is, um, uh, he's a scientist. Uh, he is not a, um, uh, not a seasoned sailor. And he's, uh, he's scruffy. His, his beard is growing. His hair is growing out. Uh, he's been at sea for a long time. I think that performance of, of Robert Walton is terrific. Uh, I cannot remember the actor who plays it, but it's just terrific. And, um, and there is also the attempt... Um, again, I, I have to give these filmmakers credit. Mary Shelley does not describe the creation process. Uh, she mentions the word spark at the beginning of chapter 5, and it's used metaphorically, spark of life. There is no elaborate uh, laboratory equipment. She keeps it secret, and the reason I think this is a secret is because uh, Victor Frankenstein does not want to tell Walton how he did it, because he's afraid mm. Walton, as a scientist, will go ahead and try to duplicate it. So it's all very secret as to how he created this creature. Well, anyhow, in the movie, uh, Kenneth Branagh's uh, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, the the creature is created in this big metallic womb, and it's filled with fluid. Uh, And I think that that's brilliant. Now, it is also stitched together, but um, (laughs) there is that attempt to, to say, look, this creature is more than just sewn together body parts. It goes a little over the top by animating the um, the monster with electric eels, as I recall. <laughs> but, yes. but you got to get your electricity somewhere in 1818, right? I mean, it's not as if you can plug in a, in a light switch. So, um, uh, but it is. I really do admire that film for its attempt. Um, and uh, one thing I, I, I that I just think doesn't work well is uh, casting Robert De Niro because it just takes the monster out of the monster uh, we are familiar with Robert De Niro as other kinds of monsters and uh, it's just kind of hard to suspend disbelief when uh, he comes on as the monster but that's that's me 
No, no, no I, I actually completely agree with you in in that context. Yeah, I think De Niro is just really miscast, and I I don't think he works as the monster. Every time he was speaking, I was hearing Robert De Niro, not you know this creature. Uh, I keep saying monster, and then I realized that in the book, it's only the creation that refers to itself as a monster. It's usually called like the wretch or something like that. Exactly. Yeah. I'm doing the Um, same thing. I'm doing the same thing. So I apologize. (laughs) It really shouldn't be the monster. Yeah. Yeah. But, um, but I will say like in, in Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, you still don't get, um, the creation that has, um, the, uh, vocabulary that he has in the book. He's still kind of a little bit more simple, uh, it certainly still seems to have a mental acumen that is fairly close to the book or maybe not quite as in, in terms of the ways that he's able to, you know, get um, um, Frankenstein to like follow him all over. And, and he certainly um, doesn't similar things that they do in the book, like killing Elizabeth and, and, you know, saying, I'll be there on your wedding night if you don't give me a bride, that kind of thing. Um, so I think in that sense, it's, it's certainly the closest, at least in my mind that we have, uh, to a uh, straight adaptation from the novel, but still, you know, takes many liberties. Yeah, it's a pretty so. good one. And, and, you know, you're talking about um, the monster being eloquent. And, um, mm-hmm. uh, Nick, you mentioned this uh, earlier, too. Uh, you know, uh, the monster reminds me of a character in another book, and I wonder if any of your readers will be aware of this. But this is uh, it's a science fiction novel. It has very little connection, no connection, really, with, uh, with Frankenstein at all. But the character that uh, the monster or the creature in Frankenstein reminds me of is... Um, Karellen in Arthur C. Clarke's Childhood's End. There is an alien that comes to Earth in a, in a flying saucer, and one of its remarkable traits is being able to speak in final draft. It just speaks in perfect, elegant, logical prose. It's the kind of talk that people are able to generate only when they have drafted a script and edited it and edited it and gotten their thoughts distilled. Uh, the narrator of Childhood's End makes a point of saying, this is the way Karellen speaks. And I think that's the way the, uh, the, the creature speaks in Mary Shelley's book, too. This creature is speaking on a logical, articulate level far beyond any of the people around him. And he has learned to do this simply by, by reading a few volumes um, that he found in the woods. And, and there, there's a volume of history, there's a volume of government, uh, there's, a, there's a work of fiction. And from these works, he is able to figure out not only the language, but, uh, but the thought processes of the human uh, mind, and also able to figure out how, um, how people communicate. It's, he, he's a really something far beyond anything that could have been created if... Igor had gone into the lab and taken the wrong brain and put it in the monster's yeah. head, you know. So um, uh, I, I'm really glad to hear both you and, uh, and Nick mentioning that um, uh, with the way the monster speaks in the novel, because I think that's an important part of the novel that has never, as far as I know, made it into any film adaptations. Yeah, that's like the one thing I, I, I don't think I've ever seen is, is the monster as eloquent and articulate as he's portrayed in the book. And you know, part of me wonders now, like as we're talking about the novel, is just that he spends all this time alone, you know, plotting essentially, and therefore has come up and thought of the perfect way to, you know, speak and vocalize what he, you know, wants to say to Frankenstein once he sees him. So I'm wondering if that maybe plays into it and why he, you know, articulate and speaks so so well in the in the book. But I digress. Uh, anyway, um, the next one I'm going to draft and. Um, I'm 
curious what your thoughts are, Larry, if you've seen the film. Because you talked also about the life of Mary Shelley. And I believe there's a 2017 film called Mary Shelley that stars Elle Fanning as Mary Shelley. And that's going to be my pick in the third round. Now, I have no idea how accurate to her life story it is. I'm drafting it just on the film itself. I thought... I found it very enjoyable. I liked the drama. I liked that it um, really portrayed the difficulties she had with her in her relationship with Percy and uh, the trouble she had getting the book published um, by the end. And, and it goes into the idea, uh, not the idea, the, the fact that people thought it was Percy who wrote it when it was published anonymously because he had written the, the preface to it. Um, and I really liked Elle Fanning's performance. I think she's a phenomenal actress. We've talked about the great uh, a number of times on this <laughs> podcast. Um, so I'm going to take um, Mary Shelley, about the life of Mary Shelley, with my third round selection. It's a terrific film, and it, and it is very accurate, uh, quite well. Oh, it done. is okay. Yes, it it, it, it is quite well done. And um, uh, the um, let's see if I remember it correctly. Uh, this begins with her being sent to Scotland. Um, she mm-hmm. is being sent away from her family, and then she is brought back when uh, Claire fakes being ill and is brought back into the family. That's when they she meets Shelley in Scotland. She sees him again in England. They run off together. Uh, they are living uh, as vagabonds, virtually vagabonds in Europe. Yes, uh, it is all done so well, and um, and I really do like that film. I, I've seen it twice, and uh, and I, I've liked it uh, uh, liked it more the second time uh, than I did the first time. Um, a few pet peeves. Um, uh, about it, but uh, if uh, sometimes the books in uh, in these uh, these movies don't look like books in the uh, early uh, 19th century, you know uh, they, they 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 look like nice bound books that you might buy uh, in the 21st century. Um, that that's that's a pet peeve. Another one is I think she is maybe writing with a quill pen. Uh, no, she's writing with a pencil. That's right. She's 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 writing with a pencil, uh, which was I which was very nicely done. So the little minutia, the little stuff that um, mm-hmm. is in the uh, the set design and the costume design, that is all quite well done too. Good movie. Nice. Yeah, yeah. I enjoyed it a lot. And, you know, I was surprised to see it didn't get, like, the really great reviews, kind of like middling. And so I was a little surprised because I was very taken by it, and especially Elle Fanning's performance. Um, And, yeah, I I enjoyed it quite a bit. So I would actually recommend it to to any of our listeners who are curious about Mary Shelley's life. I would, too. Uh, It's a great introduction to her life. Yeah. Excellent. Uh, Nick, you're up with your third round selection, sir. All right, yeah. Uh, once again, Brantley, I think you've changed the order in which I'm going to draft these. Um, I have not <laughs> seen Mary Shelley. Now I want to because the the movie I saw that dealt with Mary Shelley's life, which I will pick, um, in spite of its many flaws, um, is called A Nightmare Wakes. Uh, it's from 2020. It's a, I think it's a Shutter exclusive. Um, hmm. But it's um. <clears throat> It is biographical, and I'm sure it takes a lot of liberties and stretches and probably conflates various timelines uh, in, in her life um, yeah, for psychological horror effect because it is kind of a horror movie. Um, but it's about Mary Shelley writing Frankenstein and um, and falling into you know a very deep depression, which I understand that she did in real life because she had three children who died. As a, I mean, well, all of her children have died at this point, but... Um, <laughs> During her lifetime, three children had died, um, and uh, and she kind of falls into madness. Like she's working on on this 
this novel. She's having like fever dreams about it um, every night. Um, and uh, and then the lines between like what where the novel starts and where her life ends or begins also just, like start to blur. Her relationship with Percy starts to to really go on the rocks. She suspects Percy is having an affair with Claire, um, which I also understand may actually have been the case. Um, so I think some of this is accurate, um, but it, it clearly takes a lot of liberties with uh, how condensed the timeline is and, and certain narrative beats that kind of drive her madness forward a little bit faster. Um, but uh, I, I'm picking it because it's a really interesting premise. I, I, I don't think it's executed well enough, uh, which is a shame because I think it could have been a very cool psychological horror movie. Um, I thought the performances were great. You know, it's well shot. Um, it, it's not by any stretch a bad movie. Um, I think it, it got unfairly panned. Like, if you look at the reviews online, you'll probably be turned off from watching it. But um, I, it, it's worth a watch. I just wish they, they like, it, it would be a story that I wish someone would revisit someday. Um, really kind of taking her life, which is pretty incredible and fascinating if you read. Um, and I obviously I'm not... <laughs> even close to an expert I've, I've read like a very brief biography of, of Mary Shelley but um, you can tell just by that like her life is, is pretty incredible um, and um, and full of drama so like it's it's perfectly ripe for a movie um, but taking that movie and then turning it on, on its head and, and making it like a psychological harsh you know character study I think might be something that again I haven't seen Mary Shelley with Elle Fanning but um, I don't know that many other biographies have, have kind of taken that horror element and really played it up and really you know great idea just not well done and that's that's a shutter exclusive and um um uh, that was that was just made uh recently right just within the last few years I yeah believe. i think it came out uh 2021 yes yes yeah. all, right. all right good one and yeah. uh, in, in part of a uh, part of a subgenre um, of the uh, the Frankenstein spinoffs, I'll, I'll revisit this subgenre in just a little bit. Uh, so we'll come back to these um, uh, these stories about the story. Uh, but first of all, what I'd like to do is um, I'd like to tell you about my third pick, and uh, let me see if I can if I can build some anticipation here, make you wonder where I'm going to go with this one. But um, I mentioned earlier. That um, that I came to Frankenstein movies fairly late. You know, I was not uh, able to watch them on television um, as as a young boy because they weren't available yet. I, I I kind of I missed them in the theaters. I was I came along too late to see them in the theaters, and I came along before they had uh, been sold to the televisions uh, to television. They didn't get sold to television until 1957. And at that point, I was watching movies on television, but I wasn't staying up for Chiller Theater, and the movies were on Chiller Theater then. And I needed to, uh, to wait until I could either stay up late and watch them or until they came on early. So my introduction to the Frankenstein monster was the stuff that was being shown on television when I was able to watch it, and that was the Warner Brothers movies. And so we got things like Hollywood Capers in 1935, which has the Frankenstein monster being discovered on an operating slab by the cartoon character Beans the Cat, and the monster comes to life and tears everything apart. This is my introduction to Frankenstein. And then Porky's Road Race in 1937. And this is one where Porky is on a hot rod race with a character named Borax Karloff. And in his, his secret lab, <laughs> Borax creates this monster car. And he's going to beat Porky the pig with it. And then Hollywood, Hollywood steps out. 
which is a, a, a Tex Avery cartoon where the Frankenstein monster does a conga dance. Well, this is how I got to know Frankenstein. So if you had asked me uh, in the 1950s, uh, what is Frankenstein? I would know, but I would have these cartoon images in my head. So finally, I get old enough. My dad notices that there's a Frankenstein movie on late night chiller theater. And he says, uh, you want to stay up for it uh, and you, you can watch it. And I said, OK, sure, let's let's see it. And imagine my disappointment when it's it, it's the Hammer film, The Revenge of Frankenstein. And there's no Frankenstein monster from the cartoons in it. I, I feel like completely gypped. Um, there is one thing I, I got to tell you, I remember only one thing from it. It made almost no impression on me. It, it, there's one thing and it was the eyeballs in the terrarium or aquarium, um, Victor Frankenstein has eyeballs, disembodied eyeballs in a terrarium, and they are trailing their optic nerves, and they're waving their optic nerves like the fish, like, like, like the tails on goldfish. It's just entirely over the top. But even still, I'm not sure I would have remembered that if my dad hadn't said, hey, check out those eyes. And um, so, but, but, that turned me off to Hammer Films uh, for a while but recently, I caught up with Frankenstein Must Be Destroyed, 1969, and this takes the musical brains motif of these Hammer and Universal films to the extreme, and it really does something with it. There is no monster in this movie. The monster is Frankenstein himself. Victor Frankenstein is the monster. He's a serial killer. He's a sociopath. He's a rapist. This is Peter Cushing, just the, the most evil Peter, Peter Cushing possible. And, um, and the monster, if you could even call it that, the creature, is a poor man who is played by uh, Freddie Jones. And he just does this remarkably sympathetic performance of a man, of, of a mind, adrift in another man's body. He's in the body of a stranger. He can't relate to his wife. His wife doesn't know him. It's, it's really moving. But then uh, the film ends abruptly. Uh, I, I won't give it away. I'll just say that it doesn't take that as far as it could. But as far as it goes, that's pretty good stuff. So I'd have to say Frankenstein Must Be Destroyed uh, is perhaps, in my estimation, uh, the best of the Hammer films. It's the last of the Frankenstein Hammer films, and um, that's my third pick. That's awesome. Excellent. That's so funny yeah. about Revenge of Frankenstein, because that's um, the only other of the, of the Hammer adaptations I saw. And I, it starts off promising because it picks up right where the first one ends. I'm like, where is this going to go? And yet, beyond that laboratory scene where you see this <laughs> disembodied eyes following a light source or something, I can't even recall at this point, um, very little to do with Frankenstein. Although, I do love Peter Cushing's performance in that movie, I think. I do, too. And, and I, should, I should say that uh, he did, the, the eyes made an impression on my young mind. <laughs> Peter Cushing also did. He was he was he is still my definitive Victor Frankenstein, or as they call him in the movie, Baron Frankenstein, Baron von Frankenstein. Um, I did uh, shortly after seeing that uh, Revenge of Frankenstein late night. I did finally catch uh, Abbott Costello meets Frankenstein on the early uh, movie. Uh, in Philadelphia, where I was living, and uh, and so I did finally get a chance to see the uh, Universal Frankenstein as, as a boy, but um, uh, yeah, that uh, that Frankenstein must be destroyed. Good stuff. Nice. Excellent, great. That pick. definitely has to go on my list. Yeah. Uh, 
was that round three? So you have the first pick of round yeah. four already. Oh, I get okay. That's right. Well, yeah. Let's let's stick with the with the brain swapping <laughs> musical brains. Okay, get ready. Here is one that um, this is going to come out of left field. Uh, but I think it's important to draft, to have a very uh, diverse draft, all right? Oh, so, sure. the Warner Brothers cartoons weren't the only way I was able to satisfy my Monster Jones back then in the 50s and the 60s. In the days before video cassettes and, uh, and, and streaming and uh, in discs, there was a way for a kid to get monsters, even if they weren't showing on the television, the three channels that were available, and that was in the magazines. And so Warren Publishing had Famous Monsters of Filmland, and they had uh, a series of black and white comic books, Creepy and Eerie and later Vampirella, and it was in the 10th issue of Creepy that I came upon a story by Archie Godwin, uh, Archie Goodwin, uh, I'm, I'm getting him confused with, uh, Mary, with Mary, Shelley, Mary Godwin, <laughs> Archie Goodwin, and um, illustrated... Um, by uh, Rocky, I don't know if I can remember his name, I should probably give him credit too, but uh, Rocky Mastrosario, I think his name is. Anyhow, the movie starts, or the, the, the story starts off with a monster climbing out of the sewer and happening upon a graveyard and finding Victor Frankenstein. He's not named, but you can tell by the picture he's Victor Frankenstein. And he's talking to a distraught woman. Think of the, um, uh, the wife from Frankenstein must be destroyed. And uh, they have just buried her husband. And the monster looks on and he is looking at them talking together and he flies into a rage. There's a little bit of a flashback as to where the monster came from. We see that the monster has a connection with Victor Frankenstein and this connection drives him to surprise Victor Frankenstein on his way home and carry him away and carry him into, I think it's into the swamp or into the quicksand where they both sink to their deaths. And at the very end, oh, I am not going to give this away, but there's this final line that the Victor Frankenstein character speaks to the monster as they go sinking into the quicksand, and it just knocked me out. As a kid, I just thought, wow, this is the best trick ending ever. Now, this came out in Creepy, 1966, and it was issue number 10. And listeners can find it online. It's, you can buy it. It's $100, $120, but you can get it for free on Amazon Unlimited. It is in Creepy Archives, Volume 2. And the nice thing about getting it for free in Creepy Archives is that a printing error that occurred in the edition that I saw as a child has been corrected. And what they did is they put the trick ending right in the middle of the story. They mixed up the pages. Can you imagine that? So I'm reading this as a kid, and the story already has this convoluted timeline. It has flashbacks. You know, the monster is remembering its past. And so right in the middle of the story, here's the ending. And then Uncle Creepy comes on at the bottom of the page, and he says, he, 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 kids, I bet you didn't see that coming. And I didn't. And then I turned the page, and the story continues. <laughs> well, I was still, even though the ending was given away midstream, I still think it is one of the pinnacles of, um, of horror comics. I strongly recommend it. It's called The Monster. It's by Archie Goodwin, and uh, it's in Creepy Number 10, or Creepy Archives, Volume 2. 
That sounds awesome. And hey, yeah, that's a great. And I can't show your people. I can't show your listeners, but I can show you. There it is. Oh, you have yes. it right there. Oh, nice. <laughs> Very cool. <laughs> nice. That's wonderful. Now, is that your original one that you had as a that's kid? That's the original one that I had as a oh, kid. Oh, great. That's yes. incredible. Nice. That's Looks like it's cool. in good shape. <laughs> mm-hmm. Uh, so that was um, yeah. that is varied. I like I like you you've you've bounced around mediums here, which is great because mm-hmm. I think all of mine are going to be films. Spoiler, um, that's all I've got. <laughs> so um, I like that you're mixing it up. Um, yeah. So Revenge of Frankenstein was, I enjoyed it and it was going to be on my list, but I've I've replaced it with a couple. Um, couple other ones that I was on the fence about, but for number four, I'm going to pick 1973's Flesh for Frankenstein, um, also known mm. as um, Andy Warhol's Frankenstein. Um, this is a movie, when I was in high school, I had a book called uh, Video Hounds Horror Show, 999 Hair-Raising, Hellish, and Humorous Movies, um, and it was a collection of 999 movies with short one to four paragraph reviews on each one. Um, with like a rating, one to four star rating at the end. Um, and uh, that was when I was first getting into horror. And I saw, I, can't, I lost kind of how many movies I, I saw just based on, on that book alone. Um, and when I was in high school, it was great. I, I decided, you know, once I really got into horror, I was going to skim through this book and find all of the most extreme, you know, violent, sleazy, whatever, and, and go straight for those at my local video store. So, um so Andy Warhol's Frankenstein caught my eye, and I, I found the X-rated VHS uh, at a local video store, and I was like, this is great. I'm going to bring this home. There's going to be gratuitous violence and nudity, and it's going to be so much fun. Um, and I hated it. <laughs> I thought it was terrible. <laughs> um, but it was just, I was bored, and I didn't think it was gory enough. I didn't think it was, you know, it was shot well. I just, I just hated it. Anyway, flash forward, and I understand it has a big cult following now, so I revisited it for this podcast and i did a complete 180 um you know i was an idiot in high school and i'm still an idiot but now i appreciate that this movie was made for idiots and i loved it it's so great um it's uh you know it's it's udo kier plays you know frankenstein and he i'm sure i butchered his name um and he is making a male and a female monster simultaneously uh, in the hopes that he can get them to mate and he can create like a super race of people who will answer only to him. Um, and the entire movie is just uh, completely bananas um, with just, you know, deliberate overacting. And uh, I think at the time I didn't realize that it was supposed to be schlocky. And now that I appreciate that, that's what makes it so great. Um, you know, and it was shot in 3D. So there's plenty of gratuitous things of like organs being thrust at the camera. Um uh, organs of both types, um, like, well, there, there are, um, and, uh, and it's just so delightfully bad, um, I had a great time with it, and I, I, like, I've really come to appreciate that movie on its own merits, and, um, I know Vinegar Syndrome just put out, like, the 4K collector's edition, and so I, I've <laughs> got to put that on my list, because it's now way up there on my favorites list. Oh, that's what I, have you seen that, Larry? Because I have not seen this. I one. have seen pieces of it. 
and okay. I remember I was in New York when it came out, and um, I was thinking, I don't think so. I, I walked past, <laughs> you know, I was, I was, yeah, I was at the point, I was past the point where I had discovered Frankenstein, and I had seen the movies, and then this came out, and I said, I think I might pass on this. Um, <laughs> but given Nick's recommendation, I am going to check it out. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, I, feel I like hope I didn't oversell to... it because I'm sure you'll all be disappointed, but it's fun. <laughs> nice. Yeah, I'll, I'll uh, check that out. Now that I know it's supposed to be shock, yeah, I'll set my expectations accordingly. I mean, it's terrible. It's a terrible, terrible movie. It's really bad, but you'll, I think you'll really enjoy it. <laughs> all right. Uh, all right, great pick. Um, well, all right, so it's my fourth round pick, and then I've got the back-to-back and the fifth. I... I, I can't go this whole draft without taking a universal Frankenstein film that I grew up on. So I'm going to go with Bride of Frankenstein oh, yes. as my universal <laughs> selection here. Uh, the sequel to the original Frankenstein. Um, you know, when I was, we were all talking about when we were kids and experiencing Frank, uh, Frankenstein. And that's what I, my, I think probably my, one of my early introductions to monster films was the universal monster films so the your draculas your frankenstein your wolfman invisible man um the mummy and creature from the black lagoon and that was actually my favorite it was the creature from the black lagoon was kind of my yeah, right in my heart the one that i enjoyed the most but i loved the frankenstein films next both the original frankenstein and especially bride of frankenstein and I forgot rewatching them for this draft how short they are. Mm-hmm. The first one's like an hour nine with James Whale's introduction. Oh, wow. And the second one's like an hour 19 with the Mary Shelley, Lord Byron, Percy Shelley scene at the beginning. Um, they are like combined. They're less than a, some Marvel movies. It's, it's really <laughs> wild when you think about it in that sense. They just, yeah, they're, they're so short. And the whole time I was watching it, I was just like, Boy, I could I, I could watch so much more of this, especially because the bride doesn't come in until the very, very end of the movie. You get so little of her, and yet it's such an iconic, uh, you know, moment in film history. Uh, the, I don't know, five minutes of screen time that she has. It's, it's so incredibly short. Um, but this film, I think... Boy, how do I... I'm trying to put into words why I want why I picked this one over the original and I think this one as 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 oh boy as heartbreaking as the first one is in some ways I think this is like doubly heartbreaking because you have these two characters Frankenstein thinks he's finally found someone a, a companion for life something that he a friend you know that he's wanted for so long and is rejected by her as well uh when she f- you know first sees him essentially and it's just it's just a very brutal kind of hit I feel like um and really makes you feel for the I, I call them Frankenstein I should say the the monster of the creation um in a way that I I think you know I didn't necessarily in the first one, as sad as his circumstances are there. 
Um, and so that's why I'm taking the Bride of Frankenstein over the original Frankenstein. That's right. That's a great pick, and I was hoping someone would pick it. I, I wanted to leave it for one of you guys to pick it, and uh, uh, but I do. It would have been my pick. I'm, I'm kind of playing Moneyball here with my drafts. You know, I'm not picking the mm. obvious ones. I'm trying to yeah. uh, start trying to get this very broad uh, team going here. But Bride of Frankenstein is really, uh, I think, my favorite Universal film, and uh, and Elsa Lanchester as uh, Mary Shelley in the beginning, and then as the bride mm. at the end uh, is just terrific and she is so frightening she is this creature that comes to life and she has no mind she's she's an infant in a, in a fully grown body and she's doing those hisses which she says that she uh, was copying the hiss of a swan when she makes that noise mm. and um and the, the hairstyle. Oh, there's that movie. What is the movie? Gods and Monsters, where uh, they, yeah. they dramatize that final scene. They're shooting that final scene because Gods and Monsters is is a movie about making uh, the Bride of Frankenstein. In part, it's about mm-hmm. making the Bride of Frankenstein. And I just love this part at the end of Gods and Monsters, where the character playing um, uh, Pretorius. Um, now, you know, it not, who was who was the the original actor who played uh, uh, Pretorius in Bride of Frankenstein? Oh. I his name is escaping me, but I, I, he's great. It'll come to me. Anyhow, he mm. says, he says something to the effect, did we just do her hair and put her in a gown? <laughs> so it's, it's just this great final scene um, uh, that, that's poking fun of uh, the, the ludicrousness of this, uh, this creature coming to life with her hair uh, you know, done and it's streaked and she's in this gown. But uh, nevertheless, Elsa Lanchester pulls it off and she is chilling as can be. You know, something else that film does is it gets back to this notion that uh, Victor was, Victor, I say, but isn't it interesting in the Universal movies, his name is Henry? Yes. You know, yeah. <laughs> so yeah. so in this case, in the movie Henry, um, uh, doc- actually it's Dr. Pretorius who is taking the, uh, playing the part of uh, filling in for Dr. Waldman. He grows these creatures in bottles. He grows these mm-hmm. miniature people. He doesn't assemble them from parts. He grows them much as I am convinced uh, Victor Frankenstein in the novel grew his creature. So there's a lot of nice grace notes in Bride of Frankenstein that really make this the one that uh, if I were going to recommend one universal film, um, not necessarily the pick for my team, but, but if I were to recommend for someone to watch one, it would be this one. Yeah, yeah, and it's Ernest Thesiger. Ernest Thesiger, right? yes. Okay, all right. And he, yeah, he's also in an Old Dr. Dark Dr. House, which he does a great job in that movie too. <laughs> he is a riot. Yes. Yeah. Uh, okay. Yeah. So that is my um, my fourth round pick, and I'm just going through here. Okay, I've got a modern adaptation that's you know like a real kind of and RoboCop that's more of like uh, not a direct adaptation, but I've got. Uh, a story about Mary Shelley. I've got what's perhaps the most faithful adaptation. I've got the classic Bride of Frankenstein. So where am I going to go with my fifth round pick here? If I'm trying to have a well-rounded uh, draft, um, I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to put some comedy in here, and I'm going to take another Bride film. And I just was doing research for it for the With Gorley and Russ podcast, but it's going to be Bride of Chucky, uh, <laughs> which <laughs> nice. Ties directly in with uh, Bride of Frankenstein because that is what um, Tiff is watching when she gets electrocuted in the bathtub of her trailer is the Bride of Frankenstein and the classic scene uh, of, uh, you know, the bride coming to life. Um, 
maybe this needs to be maybe the commissioner needs to weigh in to determine if this is acceptable for my final selection i was listening to your eco horror podcast and i thought that your guest uh, whose name is escaping me at the moment could could somebody help me out there who was that who yeah who was that uh matthew chernoff matthew chernoff he made yeah. such a great point he said well you know what i want to hear what you say i want to hear your okay. justification because you've obviously got one you know what you're doing i i okay. must admit that i have never seen a chucky movie so so I'm, I'm right. I'm with the Chucky movies oh. right now where I was with the Frankenstein movies <laughs> when I was a kid. So I have to get caught okay. up. So I got to hear about this. And, uh, and uh, so come on, you're going to sell me on it. And tonight after we yes. finish up, I'm going to put on Bride of Chucky. <laughs> nice. Okay. Nice. Uh, so the entire premise for the Child's Play films is that a serial killer, Charles Lee Ray, has used voodoo to put his soul into the body of a doll. Okay, so that's the entire premise. Bride of Chucky is a very uh, comedic send-up of Bride of Frankenstein in which his girlfriend at the time has found him. He needs to be reassembled because he was thrown through a fan at the end of Child's Play 3. So he's all chopped up into a bunch of pieces. She sews him back together and staples him back together in this very kind of gnarly way where he begins to resemble Frankenstein with all of these scars and staples and everything uh, holding him together. And then she herself gets transported into a doll that essentially is his bride uh, in Bride of Chucky with electrocution. He throws a toaster into the tub that she is watching Bride of Frankenstein is in and like does the voodoo uh, chant to put her into the body of the bride. And then the rest of the film is essentially a road trip in which they try to get this young teen couple to bring them across the country for this MacGuffin of them getting the amulet that was around his neck when he was buried. Um, but it actually the child's play films from number two on have been kind of inspired by uh the universal frankenstein films uh because in the second one he comes back to life through electrocution and don mancini the creator and writer even said like hey it worked for frankenstein why can't it work for chucky uh <laughs> and then <laughs> and bride of chucky is very much a send-up of uh bride of frankenstein the follow-up film was originally going to be called Son of Frankenstein and followed that universal naming convention of Bride to Son, but they changed it to Seed of Chucky, actually, um, because the character is actually kind of gender-fluid and trans, essentially. Um, at least that seems to be the reason. I, I'm still working on the research there. But anyway, so that is why I would pick Bride of Chucky to take kind of an oddball off-the-wall, comedic uh, fifth film here in the final round. All right, you've sold me. I, 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 sense a, okay. uh, I sense a Chucky movie marathon coming up here. Uh, <laughs> nice. <laughs> Excellent. Well, I'm glad it gets commissioner approval, basically. And I'm very, I'd be very curious to hear your thoughts on the franchise if you do end up watching the Chucky You're films. You're on. Yeah, we did. We did Excellent. an episode on, on, on those films, so I revisited those for the yeah. first time since middle and high school, too, and uh, another one I did a complete 180 on, you know, beyond the first one, I did not like them uh, in high school. But Brantley and I, I think both th both agreed on the episode that it's the most consistently high quality of, you know, long-lasting horror franchises. You know, right? Yeah, um, the, the highs probably aren't because as it has high a as a lot voice. of others. Yes, yeah. Don Mancini yeah. has written every every instance. Although, you know, the first one he had the original concept, and then like Tom Holland and John Lafia did like drafts of the of the script. Right. 
Um, so they changed some things. They brought in the voodoo, actually. That wasn't in his original screenplay, actually. Um, but from then, it's been he's been the sole screenwriter from two on. Um, but yeah, so the the franchise as a whole doesn't have as high of highs as as a lot of others. But I also think that the gaps in quality between the highest and lowest points aren't as big as, as some others, others yeah. essentially. Yeah. But yeah, anyway, so that is my fifth round selection, Pride of Chucky. Uh, Nick, your your final selection here. Sure, yeah, my final selection is very short. Um, it's a short film, and there's not going to be much to say about it, but it is um, 1910's uh, Frankenstein, uh, the Edison mm. short film, uh, directed by, I'm sure I'm going to butcher this, J. Searle Dolly. Um, and, uh, yeah, so silent film, I think... Um, you know, we, we have the first stage, stage adaptation. I'm pretty sure this is the first film adaptation. Um, very, very, I mean, the first title card says it's a very loose adaptation of Mary Shelley's novel. Um, and it's only like 12 to 15 minutes long, I think, depending on where you watch it. Mm. Um, and, uh, and so, yeah, I mean, that's obviously not um, a one-to-one adaptation of, of the full-length novel. Um, but... Uh, it has a couple things going for it that I really like, um, and I saw that for the first time in prep for this podcast as well. Um, one is that the uh, creature makeup is pretty scary, uh, and and the quality of the surviving prints um, actually does it a lot of favors because you can't you know oh. it's it, you know a it's um, very typical of you know early short silent films in that like you know shot scales hadn't really been experimented with yet so every scene played out very theatrically in like a wide shot so there are no close-ups of the monster makeup so you see it from far away and i think that helps mask anything that may and also then it's deteriorated so so much over the last hundred years um uh so but it's 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 creepy it's got a really actually pretty chilling transformation scene um and what it does that uh is interesting in hindsight now i didn't really pick up on this until we started talking about these movies but um it's not you know a creature sewn together but from a bunch of body parts you see him essentially putting some chemicals in like a bowl um and dumping the bowl into a vat with a bunch of steam coming out and that's how he makes his creation from scratch essentially <clears throat> which is kind of that's cool. right and that and that comes from uh, you know, certainly the novel, uh, which leaves it kind of vague, uh, but suggests that he has grown it using chemicals. But that creation scene, that owes a lot to presumption or the fate of Frankenstein. Oh, nice. I wonder. Okay. Yes. As does the monster design, uh, because we see the monster in there, uh, again, does not have any stitches. Uh, right. has very long hair, very long, you know, wild hair. And um, and how about the the creation scene, the special effects? Incredible! Is that amazing? Talk about 1910 special effects, and these are just impressive as can be. Yeah. The the monster taking shape amid these flames. Yeah. And uh, and of course, you you as as a filmmaker, you're, you're recognizing uh, you know how you could do that, how you could sure. recreate that today, um, by uh, by by actually taking a model of the monster and setting it on fire. And letting it burn down, and then rolling the film backward. Yes. And so the monster comes; it takes shape as it rises out of this flaming vat. It's incredible, isn't it? It um, is. 
absolutely. It's, it's, it's jaw-dropping, and I, and I hope that all the people who are listening to this will go. That, that film, until just recently, was thought to be lost. Right, yeah. And, um, and so we have just, uh, now it's available on YouTube. Anybody yep. can watch it. Yeah, that's where I checked it oh, out. Cool. You can see it in the Wikipedia article. They have a they have the film um, in decidedly worse quality than what you'll find on YouTube. So if you're gonna watch yeah. it, I would just suggest going for it on YouTube. Um, I, I like poked around a bit until I found one that was restored well enough. But yes, the creation scene, and again, it might be the quality of, of the aged film, but like um, you know, you're watching it and you're thinking okay, like, this looks amazing, I can see how they did it by reversing the film or whatever, but, like, you know, it doesn't look like the smoke is coming down, like, the quality, I don't know if there was some, like, another layer of smoke added in in front with, like, a super um, imposition, but it it works, and it doesn't look like it's just a reverse film, it's very well done, it is actually very creepy, Um, and kind of an interesting ending out of left field, uh, where he uh, disappears into the mirror? The creature. That's it. Yes. Yeah. Very weird. So is the um, is the creator the monster? Um, you know, I wonder if that's what that is suggesting. Uh, right. That, that that there is this the the, the the monster the creature is a reflection um, of the creator. That's interesting. Yes, he's left standing there. Victor is left standing there. Um, yeah. What I am curious about is um, you know, like with all silent films, I'm not sure where the particular soundtrack that I saw, like the version I saw where the, where the soundtrack and the score came from, if it was original, if someone else scored it themselves, um, how many different versions of the score may or may not exist. But um, the music worked really well in the version I saw, really well. It was very effective. Good. Yes, I'm glad you picked that. I was going to mention that in the, in the, in the roundup at the end if, if nobody mentioned it, but that is a great choice. So, oh, thank uh, you. Um, and, um, and again, uh, you know, it gives you a nice diverse team. You've got a lot of coverage there. Thanks, yeah. And that's kind of what I've been going for. I, I've been going for, uh, for, for, for coverage here. So I, 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 have, uh, I have a stage version. Uh, I have a universal version. I have a, uh, a hammer film. I have a, a comic book. And uh, uh, now let's see if we can return to that sh- subgenre that we were talking about earlier. Um, and we mentioned it also a little bit with uh, Bride of Frankenstein. These, um, these recreations of um, Mary Shelley at uh, Villa Diodate with Lord Byron and Percy Shelley and um, and Claire Claremont and she's um, she's uh, in her teens she's in her teens and she is being challenged to a story writing contest and and she's with all these great writers she's with Lord Byron and she's with Percy Shelley is she going to be able to hold her own and then the storm rolls in and uh, crazy things happen and nowhere do crazier things happen than in uh, Gothic from 1986 uh, with screenplay by the great Stephen Volk and uh, and who's that directed by Uh, Ken Russell right and um, we also have another version of this, uh, this experience that Mary Shelley had in getting the idea for Frankenstein in a movie called Rowing with the Wind. Have you ever heard about it? 1988? No. Um, and uh, there is another that came out that exact same year. These all came out within uh, uh, two years of each other. Uh, the Haunted Summer. Mm-hmm. Um, and this one um, stars, um, who's the guy who played opposite Keanu Reeves 
in Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. Oh, uh, Winters. Oh, Alex, Alex Winters. Winters. Thank you. Alex Winter. He plays yeah, Alex he Winters, plays yeah. Doctor John Polidori <laughs> in this movie. And so these are all films that attempt to capture the night or uh, attempt to convey the what happened on the night that Mary Shelley got the idea to write Frankenstein. But I'm just going to bypass all of those, and I'm going to take one. Hmm. This is the episode eight, uh, uh, season twelve of Doctor Who. It's called The Haunting of Via or Villa Diodate. It's from 2020 and the Doctor visits Mary Shelley on the night that she is challenged to the story competition by Lord Byron and she gets the idea for Frankenstein by a cyborg that tracks Doctor Who down to Villa Diodate. This is great stuff. It doesn't get any better than that. So where does the idea for Frankenstein come from? It comes from a futuristic cyborg. No wonder it's such a great novel. (laughs) I love it. Wow, that's a perfect way to wrap up the draft too. Yeah. Uh, I got to see that episode. Yeah. So I'm sorry. What se- what season and episode was yeah, this? If one? I'm not mistaken, it is episode eight, season twelve. It's available on HBO. Okay. Okay. That is awesome. And it's called "The Haunting of Villa Diodate." Okay. Excellent. That's. A, I, I watched. Um, I watched the X Files episode. The 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 postmodern Prometheus, I believe, uh-huh. was the title, which was season five, episode five, and uh, yeah, it didn't make my list. <laughs> I'll say that I don't I don't know if you've seen that one. Um, I have not seen this Doctor Who episode, uh, but that was like the the one like episode of television I watched in order to um, to kind of vary it up so it wasn't only uh, film adaptations essentially. Um, it's shot in black and white. Chris Carter wrote and directed it. It's very, it's very like, you know, it's a little surreal. It's a little over the top and a bit ridiculous. You know, it was '97, and it, you know, it's the the year after Scream. And I wonder if they're trying to inject more like, you know, like humor intentionally into the the episodes after that. But anyway. It, yeah, it wasn't it wasn't great. <laughs> so I'm glad that there's at least you know a Doctor Who episode that's really fun and entertaining that uh, that uh, captures the spirit better than that X Files episode did. Yeah, and I, and, and I should I should apologize to any readers who are doctor listeners who are Doctor Who fans because I'm I'm not that knowledgeable Doctor Who. I hope I got that synopsis right. That's what I took away from this very wild episode. <laughs> but I've seen I've seen a total of two Doctor Who episodes, uh, and the other one was it was a terrific one called blink uh that was recommended to me um but i I had i knew i had to watch this one when uh when i saw that there was a uh, villa diodate episode it's good stuff great oh what a one what a great way to wrap up the uh the draft then with that pick (laughs) um okay so let me do like a quick wrap up um uh nick in the first round you took uh curse of frankenstein in the second round you took depraved in the third you took a nightmare wakes in the fourth you took flesh for frankenstein and in the fifth you took frankenstein the 1910 short uh in the first round i took robocop 
And then I took Mary Shelley's Frankenstein in the second, uh, Mary Shelley in the third, Bride of Frankenstein in the fourth, and then Bride of Chucky in the fifth. And then our wonderful guest, uh, Lawrence Connolly, you took Presumption or the Fate of Frankenstein, the stage adaptation with your first round pick. You took Son of Frankenstein in the second round. You took Frankenstein Must Be Destroyed in the third. You took Issue 10 of Creepy, and specifically the story The Monster in the fourth round. And then in the fifth round, you took Doctor Who Episode 8 from Season 12 uh, on the... uh, Mary Shelley's inspiration for writing the Frankenstein story. Uh, what a way to wrap up the draft. Uh, let's move right into our post-draft analysis and the honorable mentions. Uh, you know, the, the undrafted free agents. What, what else would you have um, added to the list here if you could have drafted more things? Well, I was, <clears throat> I was thinking uh, Nick did uh, Andy Warhol's Frankenstein, so I was thinking I should probably include an art house film in mm. this and uh, and I've got one that I, I wonder if you've heard about it um, it's from 1973 it's a Spanish film it's titled The Spirit of the Beehive and it mm. takes place uh, right after the Spanish Civil War and it's in the middle of Spain and it's in this, uh, the, this, this impoverished village and the thing that the kids look forward to in this village is the movie man the movie man drives in like the ice cream man The movie man comes in, he opens the back of his truck, and he unpacks the cans of film. And then he unpacks the projector, takes them into this darkened building, and he shows them movies. And as this movie begins, he is showing the children of this village Frankenstein, James Whale's Frankenstein with Boris Karloff. And there are these two young girls. They're probably nine or 10. They're definitely preteen. And they are watching this and they are trying to understand um, the relationship with the monster. And they are particularly um, riveted by the scene in which the monster finds the girl by the lake. And they watch this uh, with, with, with rapt horror and with, with deep interest. And they leave the theater and they, tr- they talk to each other. What was going on? Why was that monster like that? What made the monster that way? And as the story progresses, the, um, one of the young girls um, gets a, uh, runs away from home. And she ends up by a lake. And she hears something moving behind her. And she turns around. And it's the Boris Karloff Frankenstein monster. It walks out of the foliage. It kneels down beside her. And we basically have a recreation of the scene from James Whale's 1931 Frankenstein. Now, what's interesting, I, sh- I, should have not, I should not have forgotten this. I should not have left this out. But right before the monster appears, the young girl is looking in the water. And she's looking at her reflection. And her reflection is dancing on the dark water. And then it turns into the face of the monster. It turns into Boris Karloff as, um, as the monster. And that's when she turns around and she sees the creature standing beside her. I don't know if I need to worry about giving away the ending. I don't even know if there really is an ending of this film. It is, a, it is very much an art film. It's, it's a film that washes over you. It's, um, it, it is all about the, the mysteries of childhood and, and the way monsters inform our childhoods. It is um, just a remarkable film that I did not particularly 
enjoy when I was watching it. It's very slow. But after it was done, I just thought, man, I can't get that out of my mind. It's just a beautiful, beautiful film. Uh, the Spirit of the Beehive. And uh, I don't know if they got the rights to the Universal Monster because I know that, um, that, it, that Mel Brooks couldn't get it for Young Frankenstein. Uh, Pete Boyle was not able to wear the Universal makeup that movie was made in the 70s. I wonder if this is a uh, unlicensed use of the Universal <laughs> Jack Pierce makeup. I don't know, but I, I'm glad they used it because without that monster looking the way it did, uh, it would not have worked. So, uh, so folks, I, I, I would have, if I had a, a, a number six pick to round out my list, uh, I would have picked that art film, The Spirit of the Beehive. Oh, excellent. I'll have to check that out. I've never heard, yeah, I have yeah, not heard yeah, of that. Yeah, that sounds very interesting. Yeah. Very cool. Uh, Nick, did you have any others that uh, you would have drafted? Um, honestly, I don't know if there are any that would have made my list. I had, like, Frank and Weenie as a backup. Just <laughs> to, oh, sure. You know, um, <laughs> the it. short. I haven't actually seen the feature, but, like, the original Tim Burton short with Shelley Duvall, which mm-hmm. is awesome. You know, that in itself is, is pretty cool. Um, there was... Uh, the fly i considered the fly the um jeff goldblum yeah. version at least um there's also a movie called resurrection which has nothing to do with frankenstein really except for that someone is trying to build a person out of body parts um uh you know one body part at a time stitching them together kind of thing so um reminds me of frankenstein but other than that there are no similarities um but worth mentioning because i it's a movie called resurrection it's kind of like a seven knockoff good thriller i think i've mentioned it on the podcast um not a not a not a well-made movie but a really fun one if you're into thrillers it's it's really pretty intense so i i bring it up now just to recommend it again while i have the opportunity so that's it for me nice nice yeah i mean i um uh, there's a couple comedies like Young Frankenstein that was mentioned, like Abbott and Costello Meet Frankenstein, which was, I, I mean, that was my favorite Abbott and Costello movie when I was a kid and a teen, but I, just, I haven't seen it in so long. And so I was like, I, I don't know if I can draft this. My, if I don't, I didn't, didn't feel like I remembered it enough, essentially. Um, and then uh, the only other one that I'll maybe mention here, and the reason I didn't draft it as much as I love the film is that it's not specifically about uh, Frankenstein or an adaptation, but you know the Monster Squad and Tom Noonan's portrayal as the the Frankenstein's monster in the film um, is really wonderful. It's just not really an adaptation. It just uh, sort of is an accumulation of all of these classic Universal monsters into one film or inspirations uh, from the Universal monsters. Um, and as much as I love the film, it just didn't feel like um the best you know uh, pick since it's not really an adaptation and and sort of just features frankenstein a, a bit in it um yeah so that's that's the only other thing i wanted to mention there yeah I that should... abbott and costello that 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 doesn't quite hold up at least it didn't for me i saw it recently and um gotcha uh, it's um Maybe it's because I'm not watching it in a theater full of people. Uh, a lot of times we watch mm. those old movies, and, and they have those pauses in there where you're supposed to laugh, and when you're sitting alone watching it, you don't necessarily <laughs> laugh like you would if you were in a theater. Uh, it didn't quite hold up yeah. for me when I watched it again recently. Okay, yeah. But I loved it as I'll a I'll be kid. honest, that was, yeah. Yeah, that was part of my worry. I was like, do I want to revisit? Because I almost was worried it wasn't going <laughs> to live up to what I remembered. Um, 
Yes, yeah, I imagine what you're saying there. It'd be like watching like um, uh, a sitcom filmed in front of a live audience that they just took the laugh track <laughs> out of or the laugh out of, you know, uh, watching that at home alone. And yeah, that, that, that doesn't sound too pleasant, unfortunately. Yeah. Uh, you know, I was thinking, um, uh, have, have either of you uh, ever seen The Terror of Frankenstein? No. no, it's uh, it's from 1977, and I, I guess if I would have to uh, have one that I would never pick, <laughs> I just <laughs> I just want to mention this one because uh, I had great expectations for it. Uh, it stars Leon Vitale, uh, and oh. uh, he is um, uh, he was uh, Stanley Kubrick's yep. uh, right hand man, uh, personal assistant when uh, they made uh, The Shining. And I know Nick, that's that's mm. one of your uh, it's personal close to my heart. favorites. <laughs> yeah. And um, uh, in uh, Leon uh, Vitale played um, Lord Bullington in my favorite uh, Kubrick film, which is uh, Barry Lyndon. Sure. Which I think mm-hmm. if any film is going to capture uh, that time period uh, better, you need to tell me about it because I don't know about it because Barry Lyndon really captures the, um, uh, let me see if I can get this right. Uh, the, the film is set in the 19th century. It's set <clears throat> It's set a generation after uh, Mary Shelley, uh, right before the storming of the Bastille. I, I, I actually, no, I have this wrong. No, it's set before uh, Frankenstein. Um, well, uh, some history people are going to hear me and, and think I'm just you know uh, off the mark here. But um, but it was um, uh, my great expectations to see Leon Vitale play Victor Frankenstein, and the film just doesn't work. The film just does not work. Mm. Al- alas. Oh, that's a shame. Gotcha. That would have been. Yeah, that is too bad. I should all throw in, since I mentioned the fly with Jeff Goldblum, that Jeff Goldblum was in a film that I watched for this podcast and didn't even mention. Because um, it was so bad. Uh, Transylvania 65000. 1985 oh, yeah. comedy that. Um, <laughs> You know, it's not even fair for me to mention it because I fell asleep during it. I'm not even gonna lie. Uh, it's but it's got what a cast. It's got Jeff Goldblum, um, I think Ed Begley Jr., Gina Davis, um, and it's about two tabloid reporters who get sent to Transylvania to investigate um, rumors that there's a Frankenstein monster, uh, you know, out and about. Um, and uh, and it's listed as a comedy, but it's just painfully unfunny. Uh, but <laughs> you know, I. I I love Jeff Goldblum, so I thought I'd check it out. And, uh, yeah, disappointing, to say the least. But Frankenstein's monster is indeed in it, so All right. could have counted. And, um, <laughs> and, and, and j- just, just, to, um, uh, just, just to clarify, I, it, it's, um, uh, if I can you know, make an excuse here, it's getting late and my, my, uh, my mind is, is wandering. But, okay, so uh, Barry Lyndon takes place a generation before um, Victor Frankenstein's story. And mm-hmm. um, and Mary Stel- Mary Shelley's story it takes place um, in the 18th century, but uh, but even though it's a little bit earlier than um, uh, than Frankenstein, it really does capture that time period better than any other film. And so it was for that reason uh, because I was connecting uh, Leon Vitale with um, Barry Lyndon and hoping that since he was in this Frankenstein movie, some of the mojo would carry over. Um, it didn't, so that's a roundabout way of explaining why I thought that movie was going to be great, but it wasn't. Gotcha. Excellent. Uh, let's see. Um, Larry, I don't want to take up too much more of your time because you've been so gracious to come on and guest. I, uh, I did put together a list of, um, 
Frankenstein-related horror news. And I don't know if you want to play like a little game, which is uh, Nosferatu or Yesferatu, which is... Are you interested in it, which would be a yes for Atu, or are you not interested in it, which would be a no for Atu? <laughs> All right. <laughs> uh, I'm only going to do a couple here. By the way, I should say for anyone listening, the, the game is sort of like shamelessly kind of taken from a podcast um, uh, called, um, oh my gosh, How Did We Get Weird? Uh, with Vanessa Bayer from SNL and, and her brother. And, and they do a nostalgia or yes-stalgia, like things from the past that are being brought back and are you into that or not, basically. So the the idea for this, though, is I, I knew you were, you know, obviously a big Frankenstein fan, and so I tried to find horror news that was only relating to Frankenstein. So I'll do a couple here. If you're into it, yes for Atu. If you're not into it, no for, no for Um Scarlett Johansson is attached to play the Bride of Frankenstein in an Apple TV film uh, just called Bride. Are you yes for Atu or no for Atu? Well, this is that? news to me, but I'm yes for Atu. Absolutely. I think she'd be great. Oh, wonderful. Yeah. That's great. Yeah, she has quite a range. Uh, I, I, you know, I mean, she, uh, she started out in um, uh, movies like The Girl with the Pearl Earring, right? And, uh, uh, you know, mm-hmm. she's played. I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm up. I'm ready. <laughs> nice. <laughs> uh, you, there is. You say you say oh, it's sorry, called the bride. It, it, the movie. I think it's just called Bride or the. Okay, bride. so maybe yeah. it's called Bride because the movie that Sting was in uh, was the Bride, wasn't it? Uh, uh, and um, so they always like to uh, to change the titles subtly. Um, so maybe it's just called Bride. <laughs> I will be looking forward yeah, to it. Yeah, that could be it. Yes, Feratu. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, there is a. TV series in the work. I don't know if it's a, a regular series or a mini series called Frankenstein Untold from Sky Studios that is said to be a quote radical reimagining end quote that explores the book's philosophical and political themes and told through the eyes of eight different characters. Uh, I believe Sky Studios is uh, in Europe. I don't know if it's England specifically or, or somewhere else. Uh, does that sound appealing to you? Is that a yes for Atu or a no for Atu? I have to go with no for Atu because I've been burned so many times on these films mm. that purport to be uh, the, the the best ever interpretation of uh, of Frankenstein. Uh, the title, I think, the title is turning me off. Frankenstein Untold. Mm. So. Is this the stuff that's never been told in film before that Mary Shelley wrote about? Or is this a whole new bunch of tangents that we're going to throw in that have never been told anywhere? Um, I'm skeptical. Nosferatu. Okay. All right. Uh, All right. We're going to do two more here. There is an adaptation in the work called Mary's Monster which will follow Shelley as she tries to complete her classic work. Uh, Kit Harington, uh, people may know as Jon Snow from Game of Thrones, is set to play uh, Frankenstein's monster mm. in this adaptation. I'm all for that. Is that a yes for Atu? They, yes, you're yes all for, for Atu. I'll tell you why. <laughs> I, I think that uh, if we talk about you know what has been untold about Frankenstein effectively in the mm. films. Um, you know, I think that it is this creation process. Mary Shelley, as a writer, is going through this creation process, creating a book that is going to take on a life of its own and is going to, in many ways, become a monster that she can't control. And uh, I haven't really seen this dramatized effectively in any adaptations. It sounds like this one might 
try to do that. If, uh, if this is going to take place during the writing of, of Frankenstein, and if it is going to include the Frankenstein monster, hmm, yes, Ferratu. All right. Nice. Yeah, that one sounds very interesting. Uh, and this last one sounds very interesting. <laughs> I don't know what else to put it. Uh, Diablo Cody, the, the screenwriter, is doing an adaptation called Lisa Frankenstein, which sounds like a comedic uh, story that's blending the Lisa Frank of the very colorful artwork that you would see on Trapper Keepers and the Frankenstein story. Uh, I don't I don't think there's very many details about it. It was just announced like a few weeks ago. Um is that a yes for Ratu for you or a nose for Ratu? I think some people are really going to enjoy that, but it's a nose for Ratu yeah. for me. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, I wish I had more info on it because I'm like, what? What is the premise here? How How are these being combined in any way, shape, or form? Um, yeah, I don't. I really have no idea what to what to make of it at this point. Um, hopefully it'll be fun and funny, but yeah, who knows? <laughs> Anyway, that was our that was our fun little game. Thank you for uh, indulging me on Yes for Atu or <laughs> Nose <right>. for Atu. <laughs> Terrific, loved it. Yeah. Oh, what great, great. Uh, well, thank you yeah. so much for joining us on this episode, Larry. I mean, we really appreciate it, and we love having again, like I said, just guests who are like so knowledgeable that like we get to pick their brain and learn so much yeah. from them. So it was really wonderful having you on this yeah, episode. Yeah, cannot thank That's you enough. Great. It's- Oh, thank you so much. It's been something I've been looking forward to. I have been following your podcast, and uh, uh, I've been recommending it to people, uh, really enjoying it. And so, as I said at the beginning, I'm glad to be on the inside now, uh, you know, talking about uh, Frankenstein with you guys. And um, uh, just looking forward to it, um, uh, looking forward to hearing it and hearing many more podcasts from you guys uh, uh, down the road in the future. Um, this was oh, a blast. Thank you. Thank, yeah, we had a great oh, time. Thank and, you so oh, much. before we yeah. leave, is there um, uh, where can people find you on uh, online and social media and stuff? Oh yes, I'm, I'm yeah. glad you asked. I, I they, they can find me at uh, at lawrenceconnolly.com or lawrencecconnolly.com. They both take you to my domain. Uh, that's Connolly C O N N O L L Y. And I'll tell you what I am going to do. I'm going to post some um, some additional information on some of these movies we talked about tonight. I'm going to be posting some links and uh, posting some film clips and uh, so people who uh, are interested in knowing a little bit more about some of these films um, can uh, you know go to lawrencecconnolly.com and um, uh, you know find out um, you know get some links watch some clips and uh, learn a little bit more about these films. I will not be doing this until right around the time this podcast comes out so that they will all be fresh and um, uh, available when people go there. Uh, they can also find me at um, Prime Stage Mystery Theater going into its sixth season. Uh, we are on all the major po- uh, podcast platforms and um, just go there and search for Prime Stage Mystery Theater and uh, I will meet you there. And then you can help me solve the next mystery which drops in November. But in the meantime, you can listen to the, uh, the past five seasons. They're all there and all complete. Excellent. Amazing. Wonderful. Thank you. Yeah, thanks so and, much. Uh, yes, and and definitely check out uh, all of his work. I cannot recommend it enough. His short story collections. They, they're available. Um, they, I know they're on Amazon. I mean, I ordered them uh, from Amazon and, and other booksellers. I've, I've bought them from. 
Um, are they on um, ebook or can people? Absolutely, they uh, they are available. I, ha I have a uh, an Amazon page, and uh, all of my books are there. Um, the uh, the one that you mentioned earlier, Voices, which has the uh, forward by Mick Garris, and uh, Visions, um, the uh, other story collection, and uh, my third story collection, This Way to Egress, which uh, has a great cover by. Uh, artist Jason Zarillo. He's one of my favorite fantasy artists, and uh, uh, that book is um, is available in hardback. I, I, you can still get it, I think. It's uh, it's officially out of print, but I think you can still get copies of it. So yes, uh, go to my Amazon page, go to my website, uh, look me up on Facebook. I am on Twitter. I haven't said anything on Twitter for a while. Uh, I'm L.C. Connolly at Twitter if anybody wants to um, uh, you know, send me a tweet. I might see it in a week or two. I don't, don't spend too much time. <laughs> I don't spend too much time on Twitter, but uh, I, I do uh, try to check Facebook uh, uh, every day. Awesome. I will meet you there. I'll see all of you in the cyberspace. Uh, uh, check me out. Amazing. Great. Yeah, thank, thank you. you so much yes, for coming on again. You. We really yep. appreciate it. I'd love to do it again. It was an absolute blast and a pleasure. All right. Yeah. Well. I, I would love to do it again. Keep me, keep me in mind, and uh, I will keep listening. And uh, um, thanks for the opportunity to talk about Frankenstein. Anytime. Thank you. The song you heard in this episode is You Are a Monster by Monroeville Music Center. It's being used under a CCBY Creative Commons license and was accessed from freemusicarchive.org. If you'd like to hear more of Monroeville Music Center, you can find them on Bandcamp, their Facebook page, YouTube, Spotify, Pandora, Apple Music, Discogs, iHeartRadio, and Deezer. And hey, if you want to reach out and communicate with us, please send an email to horrordraftspod at gmail.com or find us on Instagram at horrordrafts, all one word. We'd love to hear any questions you have for us, suggestions for topics to draft, or ideas for guests especially if you can put us in touch with them. Thanks everyone, and we hope to hear from you soon.